everybody tonight. Glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. And so uh, we welcome you and uh, we're going to take a few moments to pray and then we will uh, get moving into the Bible study portion of the evening. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Uh, Your presence here, uh, we welcome you, Jesus. We ask that you would lead us, guide us, empower us. I pray, God, an anointing on your word tonight. I pray an anointing on the teaching tonight. And I pray, God, that our ears would be open to receive what you want to say. And I pray for understanding. I pray, God, for insight. I pray for revelation. I ask you, God, that we would respond to your word tonight. That it wouldn't just be like looking in a mirror and forgetting what we look like. But God, we would really take a good look into your word and that that word would have its effect in us to bring change and growth. I pray encouragement, hope, freedom, liberty, God. Whatever work that you desire to do in our hearts and our lives, I pray it be done in Jesus' name. So God, we have come expecting, we've come ready to hear from you, ready to receive from you, we ask God that you would have your way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to the book of Jeremiah the Prophet. Jeremiah the Prophet. Jeremiah chapter 7. We also have a speak pipe message tonight. Uh, it comes to us from Pakistan, and so uh, really excited to hear from Sarah, who is uh, contacting us from Pakistan, so we can see what Sarah has to say. Hi, everybody. This is Sarah. I'm getting settled in here, and I'll talk to you soon. Hi. All right. So that was Sarah, and she's just letting us know that she's getting all settled in over there, and that uh, she's got things moving. Now, she did have an interview on Sunday and was offered a job, but uh, they're the same people that couldn't get her a visa the last time, so a little hesitant in taking that because of the issues that uh, she had the last time. So... Uh, we're still praying for more opportunities, more offers, and we'll see how it goes with her. So, Sarah, thank you for uh, sending us that message. If uh, anybody else would like to send us a message, it could be that simple. Hi, bye. And uh, maybe tell us where you're from or tell us what's going on. But uh, really, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, we have people that listen to this podcast in a bunch of different countries around the world. I forget how many. But in the average month, uh, somewhere in 20 to 30 different countries, uh, people listening to uh, the podcast. So thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and love to hear 
your story or a little bit of your story or just a high and buy, whatever you can do. But uh, go to the website at www.speakpipe, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E dot com slash Monday Night Bible Study, all one word, Monday Night Bible Study. And when you get there, you'll see opportunity to toggle a button. It'll look like uh, it's kind of the same as leaving a voicemail. And leave us a voicemail, and uh, we will endeavor to play that at the meeting after we receive it. So check it out. Do us a favor, say hi, and we look forward to hearing from more people. So thanks. Jeremiah chapter 7, and I need a volunteer to read verse 11. All right, thank you. Uh, what does that remind you of when you hear that verse? Right. So, uh, in fact, Jesus, he quotes two different verses uh, when he explains what he's doing in the temple. He begins by saying, and we'll read some of the verses, but he begins by saying in the passage, he says, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So he quotes two different verses there from two different prophets. Yeah, the first verse about his house being a house of prayer for all nations, that would be from the, the prophet Isaiah. And then this verse from Jeremiah chapter 7. And so he's quoting, he's fulfilling what's being prophesied through these two prophets. And what you see are some similarities. And as I was saying on Sunday... And I've said in other Bible studies, the book of Isaiah is an interesting book because Isaiah had a revelation of Jesus. Uh, in, in Isaiah 6, when he's in the temple, and it says that the, that the train filled the temple, the train of the Lord filled the temple, that's described in the Gospel of John as he saw the glory of Jesus, in particular, while he was standing in the temple. And I know we don't normally think it that way because it's in the Old Testament, but it is it's clearly stated in the New Testament that that was the glory of Jesus. So Isaiah had a revelation of Jesus right off the bat. That was when he was called. That was when he was empowered. That was when God cleansed him. That was when God began to put his word into him. Is that the beginning of that word was a clear revelation of Christ, a clear revelation of Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he had a revelation of him. Jeremiah also when uh, as he was going about the work that he was doing, he had a certain understanding of what was coming. If you look in, say, Jeremiah 31, there's prophecies in Jeremiah 31 that are, explain the gospel, that, that speak directly to and, and could have been written by a New Testament writer. They're so explicitly New Testament gospel. So he had some kind of, also had some kind of a revelation of what was coming. And so you see verses like this in Jeremiah 7:11, and I want you to understand this verse as speaking forward into the gospel, speaking forward into what Jesus was saying, speaking forward into Jesus cleansing the temple. And to understand what Jesus was saying and to understand what he was doing as he was cleansing the temple, you can gain some of that understanding from this passage from the prophet Jeremiah. So in the same way that we gain understanding and a, and a depth of understanding, a depth of knowledge from the book of Isaiah, from the prophecies of Isaiah, 
about the gospel, about the work of Jesus, about what he accomplished through his work and what the gospel is supposed to be, the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is, where the kingdom of God is, who the kingdom of God is, all of those things, you can gain a depth of understanding from Isaiah. You can also gain a depth of understanding from Jeremiah. And so, importantly, as we look at the gospels, and that, that is the, the focus of, of who we are, is the message of the gospel. It's the focus of what we've been called to. It's the focus of what God's done in our life. It's the focus of change in our life. It's the focus as we move forward into God's purposes and God's plan for our life. The gospel is center, central to all of those things. And so the more that we can understand about the gospel that Jesus was preaching, the more we can understand about Jesus and whether that's however that's going to be through the Old Testament, New Testament, Revelation, however it's going to happen in our life, the more complete or the more whole we're going to be in our work and in our knowledge, understanding, and in our life in the gospel. So I want to encourage you tonight to, that you let this speak to you. Let Jeremiah speak to you. Uh, just as I've encouraged you to let Isaiah speak to you, I want to encourage you to let Jeremiah uh, speak to you also. And so the first thing, the, the, the prophet, is, he speaks to the great remedy. Uh, and, and there was an issue that was going on. Uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah were both speaking to a people that had turned their backs on God. He was speaking to a people that had made a decision that they were just going to do whatever they wanted to do, regardless of what God had for them. And so they had, over generations, just entered into idolatry. Over generations, they had turned their back on temple worship. Over generations, they had turned their back on what God had set them there to do. But you have to realize this is hundreds and hundreds of years and how ch things change over just hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, amazing changes can happen into a society and, and into a culture. You look at our society and you see changes taking place. And you think about the changes that have taken place over the last 50 years, the changes in our society over the past 100 years, changes in society over the past 200 years. And no matter where you are in the world, you look at whatever society that you've been a part of and you see these changes that have taken place just over these past years and, and over these past decades. And it's amazing all the changes that take place. Well, you think hundreds and hundreds of years. And so what had happened was is that God's people had just walked away. God's people had been influenced through intermarriage. They had been influenced through the people that lived around them. They had been influenced through the land that they were in and the people that they spent their time with, the people that they invested in, the people that were helping them to do whatever it is they were doing. I mean, all of these things contributed to influence them and change the way that they saw their God, they saw themselves, and they saw what they were supposed to be doing. And so they had just gone astray. And the only reason I went into that is that I think sometimes we judge them really harshly because we look at, well, it's like you got one job, really. You know, just stick to it. But they're distracted. But they have lives to live. But they have families to raise. They have crops to tend to. They have all kinds of things going on. Just like you have things in your life, just like you get distracted, just like I get distracted, just like we have things pressing in on us, pressing in on our time, pressing in on our resources, finding ourselves in, in bad, good, indifferent situations, whatever it was. But over time, they had walked away from their faith. That's what happens. 
And so Isaiah was speaking into this. Jeremiah was speaking into this. And what Jeremiah was offering, just like Isaiah offered, Jeremiah also spoke to the great remedy to all of these issues. The great remedy to the, them being taken away in captivity. The great remedy to them losing their land, having being displaced from their homes, having nothing to their name. The lands that had been passed down to their family, gone. The resources that they had accumulated during their lifetime, gone. Their families that they had been a part of and that they had grown up with and together, many of them gone and fractured and done. The society as they knew it, gone. Their customs, gone. And so they were left with nothing. And Jeremiah was speaking into that nothing and saying there's a great remedy to this. There's a great remedy to what ails you. There's a great remedy to what you don't have. There's a great remedy to your lack. There's a great remedy to your lack of security. There's a great remedy to your lack of whatever it is you felt like you were missing. And so he's speaking to that. And he's giving them the remedy to that. As I asked you before, I said, I said, so what... You know, did you think of when you read Jeremiah 7.11 where you thought of Jesus cleansing the temple? And so let's look at a few of those verses. And we won't, we won't dwell on these. But I do want to touch them, uh, these verses. And I want, I want to touch on some of the, the, the ways that we can begin to understand these verses a little bit more deeply through understanding what Jeremiah was prophesying. So Matthew 21.13. Matthew 21.13 It is written. He said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making a den of robbers. All right. Now, just some subtleties of meaning. When in the New Testament, in Matthew, when he says a den, a den of robbers, what's alluded to there is wild beasts. All right? So you have turned it into a den, uh, and den kind of makes sense for that, of wild beasts. All right? And so there was a, there was a, a shade of meaning there that Jesus was speaking over the people in the temple. And he was saying, okay, well... Here's a, here's a real issue. And, and you think about what was a wild beast? What rules a wild beast? Instinct. Right. And what do their instincts say? Kill and eat. Alright? Kill and eat. You see, human beings, we have instincts. Alright? And, and there are certain times where those instincts start coming out. You may have heard the term, ever heard the term lizard brain? Yeah, you know, people use that term to talk about when people begin to live out of their instincts instead of out of their higher reasoning. Okay, I'll call that a lizard brain. And so it's a reactionary way of life. So how, what, what rules us, fear? What rules us? You know, you think about all the things, what's reactionary in our life? You know, aggression, fear, uh, getting what we want, when we want it, no matter what it costs anybody else. 
I mean, all of those kind of things. And when you see people, when they're really afraid, you see some of the worst aspects of humanity when people are afraid. You see some of the rudest behavior that you ever want to see. All right? And, and again, I've talked to you about this before. I worked on an ambulance for a lot of years. I was an EMT for 16 years. And I drove ambulance, and we handled all kinds of calls on highways, major accidents on highways, motorcycle accidents, car accidents. Uh, you know, you think about any medical emergency in people's homes or out at the mall or at a plaza in the middle of a parking lot or at the grocery store or the nail salon or wherever it was going to be, okay, yeah, that people would have medical issues. And, and, and it was predictable that when people were around their loved ones and something bad happened, all right, that behavior and what you would consider to be rational or even somewhat pleasant or anything else just thrown out the window. And as, a, and as an emergency worker, you learned after a while, you can't take that personally. When someone's watching their loved one die and they're freaking out and they're rude to you and they're screaming at you, demanding certain behaviors and all of that, well, that's that lizard brain kicking in. Right, where the higher functioning is gone, and a lot of times nothing they're saying is making sense. They're just yelling at somebody, and you happen to be the one standing there. And that's just life. But to watch human beings, and human beings have this instinct, and they have an aggressive instinct, and sometimes people will get physically aggressive during those moments. Sometimes. And just to be ready for that. And so when Jesus is talking about wild beasts and he's giving that shade of meaning there, he's talking about people that are operating not in their higher reasoning, but in their basic instinct type of non-reasoning. That they're just reactionary. And so when he went into the temple and he saw this kind of life, and he saw people living this way. He had a reaction to that. And, and some of you have been around long enough that if, and, and I'm going to say this nicely, nicely, we all live together in community. And there are seasons that we will go through as a community where people start getting selfish. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you've been around long enough, you may notice those moments. You may notice those times. You want to get a reaction out of me, live like that. Okay? And I will give you a reaction. Especially if you've been here a while. Because I don't have a lot of patience for it. Because of all that I can understand about the gospel... And as we mature in our lives in the gospel, and I hope you can really understand the spirit I'm saying this in, as we begin to mature, we need to expect better out of ourselves than that. Because I sure do. I expect better out of myself, and I expect better out of you than to live like that. And to treat one another like that. 
and it seems to be in cycles, it seems to go and come, however it is, and I don't know exactly how it is, but I notice it when it happens, and it's time to stop. And so we're looking at Jesus in the temple, alright, he's confronting that. He's like, you got the money changers, you got people coming to the temple, why were they coming to the temple? To worship. That's why the temple was there. So people could come into the temple, they could worship, and that's why they were there. But they had turned it into a marketplace. Oh, you want to come to the temple? we got a couple of doves for sale. We'll sell you these doves at a markup, of course. And so we'll make some money off of that. Oh, you don't have the kind of money we use here. we got some money changers over here. They'll sell you the money we use in the temple at a markup. So they were making their money. You had to buy the temple money. So you, they marked it up. So you had to do that. Then you had to go buy some doves. And they're marking them up. So you got to go do that. They're making their money off of that. And the bottom line is, is that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Not just people that lived in Jerusalem. Not just the people that could afford it. Not just the people that had enough money to go to the temple. It wasn't for that. It was a house of prayer for all nations. And somewhere along the way, the people that were in charge and the people that were running it and the people that were overseeing it forgot that important aspect of what the temple was supposed to be and turned it into something else that it wasn't supposed to be. That was based more on their selfishness, more on their, their wild beast side, lizard brain side, than it was on a higher reasoning, higher understanding, gospel-centered kingdom of God side. And so Jesus had to set it in order. And He did. He did. Somebody look at Mark eleven seventeen. Mark eleven seventeen. All right, thanks for reading that. And in understanding that this is a teaching moment, and that's what Jesus was doing, he he did the he set some things in order. I mean, he cleansed the temple. He he was overturning tables. He was setting some things in order, like this is not what it's about, it's a house of prayer for all nations. But it was a teaching moment. It's a teaching moment for them, and it's a teaching moment for us. And that's why you look at this in all three of these Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this same scene plays out in every Gospel, in those three. And the reason that's important is to understand that this is a lesson that made an impression on at least three of the Gospel writers. It was a teaching moment that had its effect. Because you know, uh, in the Gospel of John, he talks about, and in other places, talks about, well, if they wrote down everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill volumes and volumes in libraries. And so there were only certain things that were written down, only certain things that were actually saved for us to read. For whatever reasons. But I'd have to imagine, and wouldn't you imagine this too as a human being, that human beings are writing it down. Wouldn't they write down the stuff that they think is important? Right? Does that make sense to everybody? 
And I'm not, I'm not trying to say there weren't other things that maybe were important, whatever, but if you've got three guys that are recording this, and they all three of them, three out of four of them, wrote down the same thing, it must have been important. And not only did you get the three gospel writers writing the same thing, you have a prophecy from Jeremiah speaking to it from the past. Or speaking ahead into the future, into this teaching. There's something really important. There's something that we need to learn from this. Somebody else, Luke, Luke chapter 19 and verse 46. Luke 19, 46. Alright, All right, and so, what? I, and here you see a tie-in with Jesus speaking. He says, the Scriptures declare. So this is something that has been spoken to from the past. And something that He was speaking to in the present. And so we see this in kind of a, a time-independent stereo of importance, of message. From the past and the present. And this is what I want you to understand. So go back to Jeremiah 7. And how does that verse start? Jeremiah 7.11, how does it start? What? How do you see it? Okay, that's how he sees it, okay? You see how it says that? That's how he sees it? He's been watching it. He's been seeing it. How do you see it? And that's really my question. I think that's the question that Jeremiah is asking, is how do you see this? How are you willing to see this? He describes it as a den of robbers. And I think what he's trying to do and what he's trying to say through that is how do you see it? Would you be willing to allow God to change your perception of this? Would you be willing to allow the Holy Spirit to maybe change the way that you're seeing this? Because in the New Testament, when you read that in the Gospels, and I've heard people teach on this before, they look at it really simply. It's like, oh, well, they were, um, you know, he didn't like them selling stuff in the temple, so he overturned the tables and stopped them from selling stuff. But there was more to it than that. I mean, that's simplistic. And you might have learned that in Sunday school in fifth grade, but there's more to it than that. And leaving your understanding of what Jesus is teaching on that level is really cheating the depth of His teaching on this subject. It's also cheating the depth of the teaching of Isaiah and Jeremiah on this subject. Because deeper than just, oh, He didn't like them selling stuff, well, we still sell stuff in church. We sell meals all the time, don't we? Yeah, you know, I, I can remember I was at a church and we got a bunch of these little tiny Bibles. Like there, there were um, leather-bound but little Bibles, like Gideon Bibles, but it was the whole Bible. And there was a, bi- a big, uh, big deal erupted in the church because they were selling them in the back, not at a profit, just what they paid for them. You know, the church I was on staff at, 
And so people got really upset. Their big argument broke out in the church over them selling the Bibles in the back of the church. And then they had the gall to sell the Bible on cassette tape as narrated by, I think his name was Alexander Scorby. Or somebody like that. I can't remember. I think that's who it was. But he had the rich kind of English accent, you know, and it was the King James and wow. Wow. Yeah, well, we sold those too. Yeah. So people got upset. I mean, I think a couple people left the church over it. But the issue wasn't that, all right? That, <laughs> see, that wasn't the issue that was going on. That, that wasn't why Jesus was, like, upset in the temple. That, that was like, you look at it and you say, oh, well, that's the simplest uh, answer, but that's not the best answer. Because sometimes the simplest answer is the best answer, but not in this case. In this case, there's something deeper and there's something more going on. There, there's, a, there's an attitude, there's a selfishness, there's, there's a wild beast mentality, there's a lizard brain mentality that was going on in the temple that Jesus didn't like. And he was telling them that that's not what the temple was for. The temple wasn't for people to, to meet their own needs somehow through selling stuff. It wasn't their own selfishness. It wasn't them just doing whatever they felt like. That wasn't why the temple was there. The temple was there as a house of prayer for all nations. And they weren't welcoming everybody. They weren't giving everybody a chance to worship. They weren't giving everybody a chance to be in the temple even. And so they had cut access to the place of worship. They had cut access to the place of worship where God had opened the door to the place of worship. And that's just not going to fly. That's not going to fly. And so Jesus had to correct that. As Jeremiah is speaking here, he says, you know, how do you see it? Well, you need to see it. You need to see it. I need to see it. That it's deeper than just, oh, selling stuff. It's not selling stuff. It's our heart. It's our attitude. It's us opening our arms. It's us recognizing that God has opened up the doors to a place of worship for all nations. A place of prayer for all nations. A place of prayer and a place of worship for everybody. Everybody. Not just me and people like me, but everybody. How do you see it? So he said, because what it's become is a den of robbers. Now here, let's get a little more... How did I say it? it was wild beasts in Matthew? Well, here in the Hebrew, back in Jeremiah, you get some other shades of meaning. Because what you hear, literally, this word means to tear apart. Terrors. Alright? People that tear break things. You've turned it into a den of people who tear and rip and break. That's what you turn it into. And what it describes, it describes a form of plunder, but a violent, a more violent form of plunder. It's like not just, you know, kind of robbing people, not just kind of taking stuff when they're not looking, not even, not even like breaking into their house and getting stuff. Now, this is the kind of robbery where you stop them on the road and you kill them in order to take what they have. Or you beat them senseless to take what they have. You inflict some kind of violence on them in order to get what you want. And then you see why 
the writers of the New Testament, when they were quoting Jesus, they used the term for wild beast. Because it's a tearing apart. It's a, a mauling. A ripping. A violent form of just taking whatever it is that you want. And this had a, a special significance in a land that was full of caves. Palestine's full of caves. With lots of places in hideouts for outlaws and robbers. And he's like, so you've made the temple like one of these hideouts for these, these beasts of people that would just tear and rip and inflict violence on people in order to get what they want or what's going to benefit them or what they think they deserve. Whatever their selfish heart or their selfish minds tell them that's theirs. He's like, that's what you've made my house into. Like one of those caves. And it's kind of interesting. It's like, well, why would... And, and this is a, an interesting point. Why would people that are like that, why would they go to the temple? What do you think? I can tell you why. Why do people that are like that, why, why would they go to church? Why would they go to the temple? Why? How come some of the meanest people I've ever met have been in churches? Why? And feel better, right? Yeah. Yeah, some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life were in church. I'm not even kidding you. And I know some mean people. But the, 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 by far the worst were in church. Because they're making themselves feel better. Because they're looking good. For whatever other reason. And it's interesting, because it's like, he's talking to, who's he talking to? Who flocked to the temple? Priests? Prophets? Who was walking to the temple? So you got the priest. If you're watching the Happy Jesus show, you ever watch the Happy Jesus show? Yeah, it just describes the life of Jesus. And uh, what's the name of that show? Chosen. The Chosen, yeah. And, and so it's like, all right, well, it shows the life of Jesus. But you ever notice in that uh, how mean the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, the priests? Because they are. The priests are mean. I mean, they're the ones that's holding the council to try to get him killed, right? And they, they hired people to lie. They were mean. They were ruthless people. Ruthless. And you read that throughout the Scriptures. They were ruthless. And they were mean. And so those are the people. I mean, you got Jeremiah speaking to these people. And who was flocking to the temple? The priests, the prophets, others? I mean, that's who they were. And, and they were robbers. But they found their shelter there. Soothing their conscience, looking good, whatever it is that they were trying to do, that's what they were doing. And yet there is no observance, there is no profession, there is no work that will profit a person that's unwilling to change from the inside out. None. It's a waste of time. Because you might be able to fool people, but you're never going to fool God. Ever. And so you can fool people for a while, and that only lasts for a while, because after a while, people see you for who you are. That's how it goes. But you can fool people for a while, but you're not going to fool God, ever. He is not fooled. And so he sees, he knows, he's not fooled, why bother? Because really, the people that are trying to make themselves feel better, it never works. It never works. 
You can try and try and try. You can do all the things you're supposed to do. You can follow all the rules. You can do the stuff that, that they tell you to do. You can perform all of the different rituals and all the different things that they want you to do, all the rites and everything else. You get done with it and you're just as empty as when you started. And that's just been proved out, proved out, and proved out year after year after year after year. My dad was a guy that could testify to that. That he was a part of a particular faith. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to describe it. It's sort of a church. It's a, a, a faith movement that started in New England. And he was a part of that for his whole life. That's what he grew up in. And his dad was a part of it. And I don't know about his grandfather, but I know he, his dad was a part of it. That's what he was brought up in. And he followed the rules. And he did what he was supposed to do. And he followed after what he was supposed to follow after. He read what he was supposed to read. He went to the services that they had. He did everything he was supposed to do. He used to take me to the same place. That wasn't how I grew up, but he would take me there because that's what he was supposed to do. But when it came right down to it, and as he was getting older in his life, he understood, he realized that just following those rules, going through those rites, and doing what he was doing was not fulfilling. He joined other organizations that had sort of a religious feel to them. And he went through every rite that those organizations offered. He is the highest level in that organization in at least two or three different rites within the organization. Still wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't until he was in his 70s or late 60s when he was going in for surgery one time that I was able to speak to him. He had seen me for about 10 years at that point as a Christian. And I was able to speak to him. I said, you need to give this a shot. And he's like, I will. He prayed, and from that point on, his life changed. And he came into a relationship with Jesus, began to serve God in a real way, not striving to, to get done what needed to get done, not striving to make sure he has every right and every... I dotted every T crossed. It wasn't that. It was that he entered into a relationship with Jesus. And his last ten years were the best, according to him, that he ever had. Because there was a remedy that was applied that worked. But what Jesus was speaking to here didn't work. And it's never going to work. Ever. It will never work for anybody. And even though people flock to the temple or flock to the church or flock to wherever they're going to flock to for their own reasons, make themselves feel better, to soothe their conscience, to do whatever, I don't know, try and searching for peace, searching for joy, whatever it is they're looking for, it isn't just getting in the building that, that makes that happen. It's not just, just you know performing the duties that's going to make that happen. You know, they used to use those old analogies when, when the United States and, and I'm sure other parts of the world, I think these analogies started in England and parts of Europe, but when there would be people that would just go to church. And when the revivalists came along in the 1800s, they had to somehow shake people up and say, it's not just going to church. That's not what you're looking for. And, you know, they, they would talk about, it's like, well, 
You know, just be, just because, you know, if you park your tractor in a barn, that don't make it a horse. You know, and that kind of idea is is like, yeah, well, right. Attendance in the right building doesn't mean that you're really getting what you're supposed to be getting. Living how you're meant to live. In relationship, the way that God intends you to be in relationship. And so, so you see Jeremiah prophesying ahead and Jesus actually speaking to the people in the temple. And he's like, you people are here, whether you're priests or prophets or others or whoever you are, teachers or whoever you are. Like, yeah, you're a den of wild beasts. You're a hideout, a hideout for terrors and rippers and breakers, violent thieves, selfish. And so he confronted them exactly, exactly where they were. So there was a, um, and the idea behind this, forms don't do it. Form doesn't do it. And so Jesus says, it says, behold, I have seen it. Well, he sees you. He sees me. And that's what Jesus was saying in the Gospels. Jesus was looking and saying, well, I see this. I see what's going on. And I, and I want to assure you that Jesus was all about getting people into a relationship with God. Regardless of income, regardless of, of societal standing, regardless of whether or not people like them or not, regardless of whether they smell good or not, regardless of any other of those other considerations, he wanted to get them into a relationship with God. Period. And so, this whole idea of whatever the gatekeeper is, there is no gatekeeper. This whole idea of, well, then we, we need to somehow filter this or that. No, there's no filter. There is none. And that's part of the issue that Jesus is bringing out here. It's like, you people, you're robbing others. And you do it rudely. You're keeping things a certain way for your own selfishness, but you're missing the point, the big point, the huge point of the gospel. And there's only one remedy for this, and that is we all come into that place of relationship. We all come into that place of life with Him, and we find our peace, and we find our rest, and we find our purpose in that place of life. That's the only remedy. We've got to stop being standing at the door. We gotta stop keeping things the way we want them so that we're comfortable. We gotta stop, you know, trying to to keep uh, whatever we need to keep at arm's length because we're just not that sure about it being so close to us. Gotta stop. And part of what God has called us to is to be a people who are gonna love and love and love and love. And that's it. And so He sees me. He sees you. And there's no place to hide. You know, I've often told you about this old pamphlet. It was through an organization that used to, I don't know if they still exist, but it was an organization called Last Days Ministries. And the guy who uh, ran that and started that was a guy by the name of Keith Green. He was a musician. He played piano and sang. And he had a ranch down in Texas. 
And so after a while, they began to produce other materials. And so they produced a whole bunch of pamphlets. And there was one pamphlet I remember I got from there. And this is no bust on Last Days Ministries or Keith Green or anything uh, at all, because whatever. I'm into it. But this pamphlet, it always struck me because there was an illustration in the pamphlet. And in this pamphlet, it was talking about how Jesus took our sins and, and all this. And when we're forgiven, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west or to the depths of the ocean. Uh, just really speaking to forgiveness and God's forgiveness of it. And, and then it made this statement and it had an illustration to back it up. And the statement was this, when God looks at you, he doesn't see you, he sees Jesus. And so they had a cutout of Jesus pried up on a stick and they had a person crouched behind it. And it was like a, a light coming over it and so the person was in the shadow of Jesus' cutout. And that's how they were going to illustrate how he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. Well, the real, the real truth of the gospel is and the real depth of his mercy, grace, and forgiveness is he does see you exactly as you are. <laughs> and He loves you. You're not hiding behind a cutout. You're not hiding in a shadow somewhere. He knows you and He sees you and He understands you and He sees your flaws and He sees you as not measuring up to whatever standard you think you're supposed to measure up to. He already knows that. Uh, in fact, while you were still not even knowing Him, not even walked away from Him, you don't even know who He is, He died for you. And so that's the kind of love that he has. He just doesn't care. All right? He doesn't care that you're not perfect. He doesn't. He's going to love you anyhow. He doesn't care that you're a failure. He's going to love you anyhow. He doesn't care if you're a loser. He's going to love you anyhow. He's already made that decision. He's already made that determination. And that's the real truth and the power and the depth of his love and forgiveness. That's the depth of his grace. It's to understand that. And I mean really understand that. Here I am. What what I got to offer? Nothing. You got nothing. And and that's okay. That's the depth of his grace. And that's why it's important that we understand that as the depth of his grace. That we really understand the depth of his grace so we can begin to experience that. We're not hiding behind a priest. We're not hiding behind the cutout of Jesus. We're not hiding behind anything. He sees us exactly as we are, and He still loves us. He's still looking out for us. He still wants relationship with us. That is the depth of His grace. You see, His presence, and this is important, His presence and welcoming His presence into our life, that is a place of change for us. That's where cleansing starts. That's where new starts in our life. New what? New everything. That's where it all starts is in His presence. But if we're hiding behind a, in the shadows, we're not going to be in His presence. We're not going to recognize His presence in our life. I mean, I can't say we're not in His presence, but, but most of that, when it comes right down to our response to His presence, means we have to recognize it. You have to recognize His presence and respond to His presence. But that's where change takes place. That's where healing takes place. That's where wholeness takes place. That's where cleansing takes place. That's where new, new life, new adventures, that's where it all takes place is in His presence and recognizing His presence in our life. It's also a place of hope. 
without the possibility of change, without the possibility of actually becoming something more, there's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of hope. I mean, what, are you going to hide for eternity? And that's what people, I don't know if they think it through, but we're going to hide for eternity? Is that what's going to happen? We're going to pretend for eternity? He's never going to figure it out? I mean, in, in whatever case scenario you're thinking about, isn't there a logical end to it? Where you're found out and that's it and the end, of, the end is there? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's stopping the charade. He's like, stop. Just stop the charade. He turns over the tables. He declares it. It's a den of robbers and thieves and wild beasts and selfishness and self-centeredness. It's a den of all of those things. All right. It's out in the open. Now what? Now there's an opportunity to change. Now there's an opportunity for healing. Now there's an opportunity to get set free. An opportunity for deliverance. An opportunity for real relationship. An opportunity for real life now. Because it's all been exposed. And really, the only person that needs that exposure is you. You need to know it. You need to know it. You need to let Him see you and recognize He sees you for who you are. And in the day that you can be okay with that, and the day that you can understand that's the depth of His grace and His love for you, will be a day of freedom for you in your mind, in your heart. And the more religious that you were brought up, the harder that concept is for you. It just is. And that's where new believers have a real advantage over people that were born into the church. Because new believers haven't been indoctrinated with all the shame and all the guilt that's associated with not being perfect. Because most new believers kind of came into it knowing that, hey, I'm a mess and I need some help. Thanks. Thank you. Children are just expected to act right. You follow what I'm saying? Just expected to act right. You know, they're, 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 it's like, well, you say, well, I don't, I didn't teach my kid to earn his way. All right. Yeah, you kind of did, actually. Because when we're just taught to act right, that's negating a big, huge portion of all that the gospel is. I mean, I came out of my my grandfather was a pastor. I grew up in his church. I understand it. I just never acted right. I think I got beat every Sunday, just about. Not in a bad way, just in I deserved it kind of way. Because I was disrupting the service, or I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing, or I wasn't listening, or I had a real weird streak in me about that stuff. And and it never occurred to me, and I think God, it was God's mercy over my life, that Him loving me had anything to do with me being nice or perfect. And so maybe it was just God's grace on me that that happened. 
you nice boys and girls that grew up in it, you're going to have to really rethink that. You have to really rethink what it is to live in grace. You're going to really have to rethink what it is to to live in that state of of just glorious grace and what that really means. Because maybe you're not so nice. And maybe you are a bit selfish. And maybe you are a bit self-centered. And maybe you do deal with some pride. Maybe you don't care about other people even though you know you're supposed to, but you don't. Maybe that's true. And He still loves you. And He still loves you. And He's still going to love you. And just be able to live in that kind of grace. I just want to take a few moments, and I want to encourage you that uh, I really believe that God has a real grace for us to live in. But I also want to encourage you that he needs to call out the den of thieves sometimes. He needs to call out that selfishness. He needs to call out that self-centeredness. He needs to call out that that robbing others for your benefit. He needs to call out that that, that preservation of your comfort zone at the expense of others, sometimes the ex- eternal expense of others. Oh, Andy, you can't make me feel guilty. Okay. It's true, though. And so we receive, and I want to encourage you to receive that love tonight, but in the same breath I'm going to say, let it flow from you too. Receive that love and let it flow. Receive of that mercy and let it flow. Receive of that grace and let it flow. Receive of that forgiveness and let it flow. Yeah. Let it flow. Heavenly Father, I thank You that You, again, love us. And I pray that we would allow You to turn over the tables You need to turn over. We would allow you to knock some things down that need to be knocked down. We allow you to confront some things that need to be confronted in our hearts and our lives in this temple right here. And I pray, Father, that you begin to set us free from selfishness. You begin to set us free from self-centeredness. You begin to set us free from the lies. The lies. Oh, I gotta take care of myself. I gotta do it myself or no one's gonna do it. I gotta look out for myself or I'm not gonna have anything. All of those lies that were spoken over us, even from the time we were children, that you would set us free in Jesus' name. For God, I, I thank you that you see us for exactly who we are and you love us. You see us exactly for who we are and you care for us. You see us exactly for who we are. And your mercy is great. You see us exactly for who we are. And your grace is so deep. Your love is so deep for us. We can't measure it. And so I would just ask that we could receive a measure of that grace tonight and a measure of that love tonight. Just receive. Just receive. Just receive.
Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So I pray, Father, that you would continue to reveal, continue to show, and I pray, God, that in the context of your mercy and your grace and your love, that we would see change in our hearts, in our minds. We see change in our soul. Pray, God, that you'd be glorified in us. Pray we'd be a people of love marked by our love, one for another, our love for you. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. UCF and Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community dad. Yeah, so a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.